You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, the collected works of Rudolf Steiner, number 333, entitled Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, Implementing the Demands of Modern Society. This is Lecture 2, entitled Insight into the Supersensible Human Being and the Task of Our Time, given in Ulm on July 22, 1919. It is natural to ask about the causes of the hardship and misery all around us at present. But we usually look for these causes in outer circumstances, turning first to the painful experiences of the last four or five years. We may come to realize that this crisis developed gradually over decades or even centuries in the course of humanity's modern development. The war broke out like a thunderstorm that had gathered strength unnoticed throughout a long, sultry day. But even if we look to the past for the sources of our current situation, we tend to consider outer circumstances and outer solutions, the outer measures and institutions, in the hope that they might lead us out of chaos and confusion. To a great extent, of course, this view is correct, as I attempted to demonstrate when I lectured here on social and class questions several weeks ago. A different view of these issues is also possible, however. That view requires us to become aware of a significant mental phenomenon of our times. We are right to strive for more socially equitable conditions than have been our lot for the last three to four centuries but we do so out of a very strange mentality. Essentially, modern human souls are full of antisocial drives and instincts that make mutual understanding almost impossible. Life as we know it is the product of centuries of antisocial attitudes and behaviors, and as we strive for greater social equity, we are still acting out of a fundamentally antisocial frame of mind. Viewing the issue from this perspective, we discover that our modern antisocial drives are related to the fact that we have lost the way to the inmost core of the essential being we each intuit within ourselves, whether more or less clearly or only dimly and instinctively. We have lost the way to the supersensible human being. As strange as it may sound, we are no longer conscious of the longings of our inmost souls, which are thirsting for insight into our supersensible nature. In modern times it is difficult to satisfy this thirst, and the difficulties, although we hate to admit it, account for many of the outer expressions of confusion and chaos we encounter. Tonight I will tell you about a possible solution to this problem that differs from many other approaches. 
because I approach it from the perspective of anthroposophical spiritual science, I cannot resolve this problem as easily and comfortably as most people today would prefer. When learning about the mountains of the moon or the moons of Jupiter, for example, and the physical instruments and techniques needed to investigate them, people admit that this knowledge may be complicated and difficult to acquire. They accept that the process may not be easy. When it comes to learning about the supersensible world or the spiritual aspect of human existence, however, people are not so ready to accept difficulties. The way I will speak to you tonight, for example, is, quote, too difficult, close quote, for most people to follow. They prefer childish faith to a scientific approach to supersensible worlds. When dealing with our soul's highest aspirations, it is easier to resort to childish faith in the Bible or an established creed and to reject the less comfortable path. What people fail to recognize today, however, is that to want spiritual development to be easy and comfortable and to find it difficult to escape from our antisocial drives are intimately related phenomena. We have long been told and have long believed that simple childish confessions of faith can lead to supersensible worlds. If we could come to recognize the connection between this assertion and the antisocial drives we are expressing today, we would change our minds about this quote-unquote comfortable path to supersensible worlds. It is not out of spiritual eccentricity, but out of a real sense of responsibility toward the needs and challenges facing modern humanity, that spiritual science offers modern individuals another way. Real inner self-knowledge shows us that we can no longer be content with the old methods of spiritual development. Many human souls long to find new paths to the spirit, and anthroposophically oriented spiritual science attempts to satisfy these longings. Today, as I said, people wonder whether more or less consciously or more or less unconsciously about the body-soul connection. Parenthesis, that is, they wonder about it if they are not so worn out by doubts about the human soul that they deny its existence entirely. But what do we really know about the soul and the body t- today? We observe the body by using our senses, and the same reasoning we apply to outer physical things. Then, for aspects not directly accessible to our senses and rational thinking, we turn to the natural sciences to learn more about the physical body's intrinsic laws and essential nature. In contrast to outer knowledge of the body, we have inner perceptions of our thoughts, feelings and intentions, which we associate not only with certain inner desires, wishes and hopes, but also with the belief that this inner aspect of ourselves has more lasting significance for the world than does the life of the physical body. At this point, however, a question arises that gives birth to grave doubts. How do the thinking, feeling and willing that I perceive within myself relate to the physical body 
which I and others perceive outwardly, and which science attempts to explain. Today we count on having everything explained with the due scientific authority, but when we are unable to explain the body-soul connection for ourselves, we discover that there is little to be gained by addressing this question to scientists. We encounter all sorts of hypotheses and assumptions, but virtually nothing with the ring of truth to it. And we are generally left with no more certainty than we would provide for ourselves, than we could provide for ourselves. Finding a convincing explanation is one of the self-imposed tasks of anthroposophically oriented spiritual science. But the routes to a scientific understanding of outer phenomena are not the same as the routes to authentic spiritual science. There is usually not much excitement in modern scientific research. When scientists explain what it is like to investigate external natural phenomena in clinics or laboratories, they generally describe going about their work with a certain degree of equanimity. You will hear a very different story from researchers who describe aspects of the route to an understanding of the essential nature of the supersensible human being. When they talk about their experiences, they inevitably mention inner struggles, the need to overcome oneself and repeated instances of standing at the edge of the abyss of doubt. They will tell you many stories about all they had to overcome and undergo to achieve an understanding of the actual supersensible core of the human constitution. Doubts about the body-soul connection are among the experiences needed to acquire the intellectual modesty required for perception of this sort. Most people today approach such questions with intellectual arrogance, but we gradually become aware of the need for intellectual modesty if we make a real effort to apply ordinary thinking and other mental powers to the question of the essential character of the human soul and body. We find that our ordinary human thinking and perception are inadequate to the task. The inner effort, however, makes us feel somewhat like five-year-olds holding a volume of lyric poetry. Before five-year-olds can do anything with a book like that, or at least anything pertinent to its essential character, they need help to develop their faculties. We must realize that our ordinary powers of thinking and perception are similarly inadequate for understanding the essential nature of the world and of our own existence. Developing an inner attitude of intellectual modesty and realizing the inadequacy of our ordinary thinking are the first steps on the path to understanding the supersensible worlds. When we speak about these worlds, both the content and the manner of our speaking are necessarily different from when we talk about the ordinary world of sensory perception. This means, however, that we must take in hand the faculties of thinking and understanding that we apply to ordinary daily life and ordinary science. This is something we can only do for ourselves. Other people help children to develop their faculties through education and upbringing. But we must 
take our own inner soul faculties in hand and develop them further, especially our thinking, at least initially. My book, titled How to Know Higher Worlds, provides detailed and systematic descriptions of how to go about this. But tonight, due to the short time available to us, I will be able to present only the most basic aspects. There is one thing we must understand as a prerequisite to self-development of this sort. When we seek explanations of outer physical human nature, we turn to scientists. Please note that it is not my intention to belittle the natural sciences. Spiritual researchers see natural science as completely justified and acknowledge its recent great triumphs as fully as natural scientists themselves do. The better the spiritual researcher, the more he or she appreciates the value and significance of the natural sciences. We must realize, however, that our questions to natural science bump into inherent limits of knowledge. You all know that conscientious scientists acknowledge such limits. The concepts and terms used to answer our questions about objects, force, matter, etc., have changed over time, but scientists have always acknowledged the existence of certain limits that human cognition supposedly cannot transcend. In their own fields, natural scientists are right to observe these limits. Clearly, these limits cannot apply to spiritual science, but equally important is that spiritual researchers must not attempt to transcend them through mere speculation or fantasizing of any sort. As they approach subjects beyond the pale of natural science, spiritual researchers experience formidable internal struggles. The battle to overcome natural scientific limits leads to a first great insight, which proves fundamentally important to understanding the supersensible nature of the human being. By struggling with the limits of natural understanding, Spiritual researchers realize that our human constitution is uniquely adapted to life. As experience leads them to ask what prevents natural science from seeing into the essential character of the natural world, they discover a strange and shattering fact. If nature were fully transparent, with no limits, we human beings could not possess a certain faculty that we need for our life together between birth and death, namely the faculty of love. All love between individuals, the brotherly and sisterly love that warms our souls in social encounters with others, would be impossible if nature imposed no limits on our ordinary understanding. This is a truth that cannot be proved logically, just as the existence or non-existence of whales cannot be proved logically. We believe whales exist because we see them. Similarly, we cannot prove that love would not exist if our natural understanding knew no limits. This truth, however, is a matter of direct experience for anyone who achieves a certain degree of spiritual cognition and, in quotes, sees the secrets that our human existence conceals. <clears throat> One such secret is that we gain the capacity for love 
by losing our initially unlimited natural understanding and vice versa. This insight, however, also reveals what we must overcome in order to gain access to the spiritual world that houses the inmost core of our being. This is one of the fundamental principles of all paths of spiritual development in general. If we are not to lose love as we transform our thinking into something more than the ordinary, we must increase our capacity for love, our loving devotion to all of the world's beings, above and beyond the love we bestow in ordinary life, between birth and death. Preparation for the path of spiritual knowledge includes becoming much more capable of love than we need to be in our ordinary interactions with each other. In fact, we gradually become aware that as long as we occupy physical bodies, love is the only way our undivided human nature can learn about the world. Love is the only research method available to us. To gain access to the spiritual world, our thinking must develop beyond the level it would naturally achieve. We can reach this higher level by systematically disciplining ourselves to perform specific mental activities that we would perform only perfunctorily or coincidentally in ordinary life. Tonight I can present only a few details about the exercises that are described at length in titled How to Know Higher Worlds, but I will at least be able to give you some idea of the basis for the higher development of human thinking. When we perceive an outer stimulus of any sort, we pay attention to it. When we hear a sound, we develop an interest in what is happening, where the sound came from. Typically, the mental activities of interest and attentiveness are stimulated from outside. The path to spiritual perception involves a voluntary and deliberate application of energy, interest, attentiveness, etc., as in meditation, for example, where we may focus our consciousness on a single mental image for a long time. In everyday life, we would soon lose interest in that image and stop paying attention to it. But suppose we deliberately dwell on it for a period of time, reinforcing our interest or attentiveness from within, whenever it slackens. Doing this exercise repeatedly strengthens our thinking and transforms it. Just as any manual work takes effort, this new thinking is full of inner activity that takes effort on our part, and it is related to our ordinary thinking in the same way that our ordinary adult thinking relates to that of a five-year-old confronted with lyric poetry, for example. Having achieved this new thinking, we realize that the inner effort it requires is as tiring to the body as years of hard physical labor. When we recognize that the mental effort of working on ourselves is as strenuous as chopping wood, for example, we have grasped living inward thinking. By contrast, our ordinary thinking simply follows along with outer phenomena and events. Reflect for a moment on how you think in everyday life. You go about your work and your thinking runs alongside in a dreamy sort of way. 
If you challenge your thinking by reading a difficult book, however, you soon discover that inwardly active thinking is as tiring as any other activity. If you carry this process ever further, you will notice that our thinking changes into a type of thinking we never dreamt of before. Our ordinary thinking is a mere reflection of this new thinking, which is inwardly alive and does not depend on either the brain or the body for its instrument. If we follow the path outlined in Title How to Know Higher Worlds, it will become evident, as grotesque, paradoxical, or crazy as this may sound today, that the spiritual essence we grasp through inward, active thinking is completely independent of the instrument of the brain. I am not talking about any new development because this spiritual essence does not develop, in quotes. We simply become aware of its presence. We perceive the supersensible essence of the human being. At this point we also recognize the grave error of both ordinary science and the views on thinking popular in our materialistic age. Science tells us that the brain is the instrument of thinking, but this is just as wrong as imagining the tire tracks and footprints on a muddy dirt road develop from below as the result of underground forces. Clearly the, that interpretation is ridiculous. Nothing in the makeup of the soil tells us anything about how these marks appeared because they were imprinted from above by people and cars passing by. When we become familiar with body-free thinking, we recognize that ordinary science makes a similar mistake. The nerves and convolutions of the brain do not house forces that produce consciousness. They are merely imprints of a mental activity that is independent of the body. Mental activity leaves physical traces on the brain, but the body does not produce these traces. They are imprinted on it by an active essence. This active essence, however, is not always easy to grasp. It takes a considerable presence of mind to catch even a brief glimpse of body-free human thinking. Spirit flares up in our ordinary perception and fades away with the speed of lightning. As you read entitled How to Know Higher Worlds, cultivating what we call presence of mind, the ability to assess situations and respond to them rapidly, is good preparation to become aware of the spirit. By cultivating the faculty of presence of mind, we prepare ourselves to see what appears out of the spiritual supersensible world. Normally we lack the presence of mind to look at such flashes of spirit before they disappear. But when we learn to catch these glimpses of the spiritual world, that is, when our developed thinking recognizes the spirit-dwelling aspect of the human being, we see beyond ordinary, everyday human life and acquire a completely different perspective. One unique characteristic of spiritual perceptions is that they cannot be remembered in the ordinary sense of the word. When seers talk about the spiritual world, they cannot simply recall what they once saw, but must repeatedly recreate the circumstances 
that allow them to see it. But if spiritual perception is as fleeting and rapidly forgotten as a dream, it nonetheless contains a memory of a very significant sort. At this point, it is important to inject a comment that will necessarily sound very strange to people today. Centuries ago, it must have sounded equally strange when people first heard that what appear to be mere points of light in the night sky are actually countless worlds distributed throughout space. That certainly must have been difficult to believe at first, but people got used to the idea, and now we accept it as a matter of course. Similarly, the experiences that spiritual researchers achieve by developing their thinking may sound strange now, but in a couple of centuries they will be accepted as common knowledge. One of the tasks of our time is to develop people's understanding for this expansion of human cognition and perception. When we are applying inwardly alive, body-free thinking, ordinary memory is inaccessible to us. Instead, we look back on the life of spirit and soul that we lived in a purely spiritual world before descending into the sense-perceptible world and uniting with physical human bodies through conception and birth. Let me read that sentence again. Instead, we look back on the life of spirit and soul that we lived in a purely spiritual world before descending into the sense-perceptible world and uniting with physical human bodies through conception and birth. Our view expands beyond bodily life to reveal the life in the spiritual world from which we descended to enter physical existence. This insight also gives a completely new meaning to all of our human interactions. When we encounter people socially, we develop sympathy for some more quickly than for others. We develop a great variety of connections to other people during this life between birth and death. When we acquire a spiritual researcher's insight into life, we discover that anything that attracts us to one person or more or less alienates us from another, in short any interpersonal connection we develop, is the consequence of experiences with that other soul in a different world before we descended into our current physical existence. Everything we experience in the physical world is revealed as a reflection of experiences in the spiritual world. I have described a modern way to achieve perception of the spiritual world through mental effort. Many people today may be unable to acknowledge this possibility, but they are simply not keeping pace with the times. When the first railroad was about to be built in Germany, a group of physicians and other experts was convened to deliver an informed opinion on whether or not railroads should be built. These experts advised against building railroads 
on the grounds that rail travel would be hazardous to health and that only fools would choose to ride the trains. At the very least, if construction proceeded against all better judgment, it would be necessary to erect a tall board fence on either side of the tracks to prevent concussions in people standing close to the passing trains. Today some people believe, figuratively speaking, that hearing spiritual researchers talk about their insights into the supersensible world will cause concussions, but continued progress will overcome this prejudice, just as we have overcome other prejudices in the past. Many people who despair of finding inner satisfaction in old religious traditions turn to so-called mysticism, believing that if they sink ever deeper into their own souls, the true inner nature of the human being will bubble up as if from some mystical source. This approach also has limits, which spiritual researchers must learn to recognize. It is important to acknowledge mysticism, just as we acknowledge the natural sciences. But we cannot be constrained by either approach. We must learn that mysticism by itself leads only to illusions about the supersensible makeup of the human being, not to real knowledge. Legitimate spiritual researchers are truly not illusionists. They have no illusions about what should be accepted as reality. Unlike ordinary mystics, they do not begin by attempting to conjure up all sorts of fantastical phenomena from within themselves. Through the struggle to control and direct their own inner activity, they recognize that mystical discoveries are essentially limited to impressions of the period since birth. These impressions may have been received subconsciously rather than being clearly perceived, but they persist in memory nonetheless. Even natural scientists have made pertinent observations in this regard. The following example from scientific literature is only one out of hundreds and thousands. A scientist is walking past the display window of a bookstore when his glance falls on the title of a book and he breaks out laughing. There is nothing funny about the title, so he cannot understand his sudden urge to laugh. He closes his eyes, thinking it might be easier to solve this puzzle without the distraction of the outer impression. With eyes closed, he hears something he did not notice before, the sound of a hurdy-gurdy in the distance. As he continues to listen, he identifies the melody as one he once danced to. At that time, he was paying more attention to his dance partner or perhaps to the dance steps, and so the melody made very little impression on him. That slight impression, however, was strong enough to recall later in life when he heard a hurdy-gurdy play the same melody again. Spiritual researchers, being well aware of such instances and their true character, do not succumb to illusions. They know that mystical talk about experiencing the divine, eternal human being within within, sometimes has no more significance than a hurdy-gurdy melody. It is simply the recollection of past events that have been altered in subconscious memory. 
the paths of ordinary mysticism will lead you to nothing more than what you have already perceived. If you aspire to become only a mystic, you may succumb to terrible illusions. For spiritual researchers, this is another boundary to cross or limitation to transcend. For them it is a matter of direct experience, although one not logically provable, that attempting to achieve spiritual perception by looking inside oneself is neither safe nor effective. If we go this route, we risk losing another mental faculty necessary for ordinary life, namely memory. Healthy memory depends on the health of all other mental faculties. Disturbances of memory indicate that the I, capital, itself is disturbed, a terrible mental illness. Just as the limits of natural cognition allow us to love, our ability to remember is due to the impossibility of discovering the higher nature of the human being through inward directed vision. We can, however, take steps to consolidate and strengthen the faculty of memory to a greater extent than occurs naturally. Exercises for this purpose are also described in my book How to Know Higher Worlds, I mentioned earlier. If you make a practice of reviewing the events of your day each evening, visualizing them very clearly, you safeguard and strengthen the mental faculty of memory to serve purposes above and beyond those of everyday life. The next step would be to take your own eye consciously in hand by doing exercises that deliberately cultivate new habits. Think for a moment about how you have changed in the last week, month, year or decade. If you compare your present mental state to that of ten or twenty years ago, the inner growth and development becomes obvious. For the most part, however, we develop unconsciously. Life itself forces us to change. I have already described how thinking can be developed consciously. Similarly, we can also cultivate our intentions and actions deliberately. We move toward conscious self-discipline by always being aware of what we do badly and of opportunities to learn from life. In ordinary life, we are not aware of the dark workings of our will. If we take our development in hand by observing our own intentions and actions, we will find that our will gradually becomes thought-filled. When observing our own, willing becomes a concrete soul-spiritual experience. The higher will faculty, thus developed, joins forces with the enhanced thinking that we developed through other exercises. As a result, we gain the ability to perceive an aspect of ourselves that seems so completely independent of any bodily activity that we know we will carry it through death into the spiritual world. By cultivating our thinking, we come to perceive the spiritual life that precedes conception and birth. And by cultivating our will, we become acquainted with the spiritual life we live after death. You see, spiritual science cannot talk about the supersensible human being in any ordinary way.
Instead, it must tell us how to gain the experience needed to perceive human life before birth and after death. Through this approach to the world and to our own essential human nature, we also approach interpersonal matters in a new way. We observe the experiences we share with certain people. We note how circumstances bring us together or separate us, how we relate to others through friendship, and so on. We learn to recognize that all of these connections in the physical sense-perceptible world will continue to develop after we pass through the portal of death. Life after death becomes a concrete reality when we know that our earthly connections to other people will survive death. Today these ideas still sound strange, yet one of the tasks of contemporary culture is to come to terms with them. If we succeed in developing the faculties I have described, we will see human history and humankind's development in a whole new light. In the future, what we call history, now simply a fable we agree to believe, will have to become something completely different. At the end of my lecture tonight, I will give you an example to illustrate how human beings of the future will have to gain independent access to humankind's historical development. In our usual view of history, we fail to notice a significant turning point in humanity's development in the middle of the 15th century. It is commonly said that nature does not proceed by leaps and bounds, a statement that is almost universally believed, although it is quite false. Nature always moves in leaps and bounds. Just consider how a plant develops. Leaves appear first, then flowers with their pistils and stamens, and finally the fruit. Similar leaps occur in historical events, and one of them took place in the mid-1400s. We simply fail to notice it, because our view of history is so superficial. Seeing into the spirit of historical activity requires an expansion of human perception that can come to grips with outer historical events as readily as it masters events between birth and death. Such perception reveals that the mid-1400s mark the beginning of an age that will last a long time. This age succeeded another one, which had lasted from the 8th century BC until the middle of the 15th century AD, spanning two cultures, the exquisitely beautiful Greek culture and the culture of Rome, and the aftermath of both. The mid-1400s marked the beginning of our modern culture. The inherent difference between Greco-Roman and modern cultures is not yet perceptible to modern human beings. From the 8th century BC to the 15th century AD, human capacity for development was quite different from what it is today. Let me clarify this with an example. First, imagine a child in the years before the beginning of the second dentition, around age seven, and the epoch-making changes it ushers in. My book titled The Education of the Child explains what the details of this event signify to those capable of observing human nature more closely. 
to put it briefly, there are parallels between physical and psychological development. The next turning point occurs at puberty, around age 14. In successive phases, parallels in the development of body and spirit become less apparent, although they persist to some extent until approximately age 27, when bodily development comes to completion in modern human beings, as has been the case since the mid-1400s. In Greek and Roman times, however, physical and psychological development continued in parallel until around age 35, although not to the extent evident in the second dentition and puberty. This infinitely significant fact of human historical development, revealed through spiritual research, accounts for the noteworthy harmony of body and soul in ancient Greek culture. Humankind's history reveals that the number of years in which we can emancipate ourselves from our physical bodily nature has decreased. The result has been a very different relationship of the soul-spiritual aspect of the individual to the world spirit. From the 8th century BC to the 15th century AD, the reasoning and emotions of individuals developed on a more instinctive level. The life of this time period was pervaded with instinctive intellectual and emotional activity. Since the mid-1400s, however, individuals have developed more conscious rationality and emotions and have increasingly experienced themselves as independent personalities. This historical shift also explains why great events in humankind's evolution fall into one or the other of these time periods. The mystery of Golgotha and the founding of Christianity, the central event that gives meaning to Earth's evolution as a whole, took place during the first third of the age preceding ours, when human beings still remained capable of bodily development into their thirties. In that age of instinctive, rational and emotional forces, people instinctively related to this central event in the right way, namely naively rather than consciously. They realized that they were witnessing an event not entirely of human origin. They understood that when the supersensible being of the Christ united with the body of Jesus of Nazareth, a supersensible being intervened in the earth's development. The physical facts of what happened in Golgotha were only the outer expression of a supersensible event in the context of earthly development. At that time this great event was understood instinctively. <laughs> Meanwhile, since the middle of the 15th century, rational and emotional forces that were formerly instinctive have become conscious. This increased consciousness made possible not only the zenith of natural scientific development, but also outer industrialization and materialism, which were the inevitable side effects of the dominance of the independent personality. It is now time to abandon this materialism by seeking access to the spiritual world in the new way I have described here today. 
our modern age became materialistic as the consciousness soul developed out of the human soul's older instinctive manifestation. This shift to materialism, not only in outer life but also in theology, excuse me, this shift led to materialism, not only in outer life but also in theology. Consider for a moment the extent to which theology and religion have succumbed to materialism. In the age of the consciousness soul, people have become incapable of recognizing the supersensible character of the events on Golgotha and are proud of interpreting them in terms of sense-perceptible reality. Even many theologians are proud of the fact that they no longer see the Christ as a supersensible being who descended into an earthly human body, but rather as the, quote, simple man of Nazareth, close quote, greater than other human beings, no doubt, but still only human. At least so far, our materialistic age has failed to recognize the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ's death and resurrection, as the greatest event in the evolution of humanity in the cosmos. Religion itself is becoming materialistic. This process cannot be halted by simple faith, but only by the conscious spirit cognition of which I spoke today, which will again rise to the understanding that a super-earthly, super-sensible being lived in the body of Jesus of Nazareth, thus uniting himself with humanity's further evolution. Anthroposophically oriented spiritual science is pulling the mystery of Golgotha back into focus for humanity, but in a way that divests it of the narrow-mindedness of individual denominations and creeds. As spiritual perception of the supersensible human being continues to develop, it will be able to find a home in every individual on earth, regardless of race or nationality. Because perception of this sort also leads to the mystery of Golgotha, human beings everywhere on earth will learn to understand that event. In our time it is so easy for people to wax enthusiastic about the utopian League of Nations that developed in the highly abstract thinking of Woodrow Wilson. It is the task of our time to develop a true association of peoples, but this is not how it will come about. It needs a foundation in reality, a foundation that originates in the inmost human soul. The only force that can lead to a true worldwide association of peoples in the future is the soul faculty that leads to perception of the supersensible human being and to acknowledgement of the supersensible character of the Christ event. These impulses transcend nationality, ethnicity, and national boundaries and will unite all individuals on earth. Christianity must become rooted in human culture in a new way. I have said all this to show you the inner aspect of what I said in my last lecture here. This aspect is the human mindset that will once again spark truly social impulses. The ability to accept the other natural sciences depends on information accessible only to astronomers, 
physicians, or the like. Accepting spiritual science, however, does not require any faith in authority. You do not need to accept what spiritual researchers tell you on authority, nor do you need to be a spiritual researcher yourself, just as you do not need to be an artist in order to find beauty in a painting. You can accept spiritual science on the authority of your own healthy human reason if you first simply eliminate the prejudices fostered by modern materialism. The seeds of spiritual science lie dormant in the depths of all human souls. Access to them does not require faith in authority. If incorporated into our modern culture, trust in the revelations of spiritual science will rebuild that culture and serve as leavening for outer institutions of renewal. What do we see when we truly attempt to understand the essence of our present time? I would say that we see two possible routes, one leading to the left and one to the right. One would allow us to retain the perspectives provided exclusively by the natural sciences and to apply those same perspectives to societal issues. In other words, this route begins with the belief that we can understand public affairs by using the same store of ideas that we use for understanding the natural world. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels took this route, just as Lenin and Trotsky are doing so now. People today do not yet realize that the ultimate consequence of this misdirected scientific approach is social chaos or social decline. The horrendous beliefs of Lenin and Trotsky, which are now threatening to destroy any true human culture in Eastern Europe, are based on the belief that the natural scientific approach also applies to societal issues. But what has happened under the influence of the relatively recent convictions of materialistic science? As a consequence of our mechanistic view of nature, our entire intellectual life has become mechanized and no longer rises to a level that permits thinking about the supersensible human being. Simultaneously, human souls are becoming vegetized, in quotes, made plant-like and sleepy. Mechanized spirit and vegetized soul set the tone of modern cultural life. And when human souls are not warmed by spirit, and human spirits are not illumined by supersensible cognition, human bodies develop the animalistic qualities now evident in antisocial drives. In Eastern Europe in particular, these animalistic qualities are becoming the executioners of culture, and all attempts at socialization are having the worst possible antisocial consequences. The wildest instincts and drives are masquerading as historic trends and demands. This is the route that leads to the left. The route to the right is the route that I have described today, the path to perceiving the supersensible human being and the supersensible world. This route sheds supersensible light on human development striving upward toward the truly free spirit.
The purpose of the ideas about free human progress that I attempted to formulate in titled The Philosophy of Freedom was to point to spiritual activity as the basis of our becoming conscious of real inner freedom. Only the spirit that indwells each individual can be truly free. The spirit that pervades only the natural world becomes mechanistic and unfree when it serves as a model for all of our public activity. Souls pervaded only by this spirit are asleep like plants, unlike souls warmed through by the true pulsing will to perceive and value the supersensible aspect of human nature. These souls learn to behold the divine archetype in every human being and to feel socially responsible toward all. They learn that all human beings on earth are equal with regard to their inmost souls. On the route leading to the right, equality is cultivated by souls warmed through by spirit. When spirit arouses souls from their vegetative state, bodies are ennobled and imbued with an awareness of the supersensible. These bodies do not become animalistic, but develop real love in the broadest sense. When this happens, individuals recognize themselves as supersensible beings who enter earthly bodies in order to learn to love spirit. They also know that earthly bodies need brotherly, sisterly love, because individuals cannot be fully human so long as humanity is without brotherly, sisterly love. We see, therefore, that continuing in the old way leads to mechanized spirit, vegetized souls, and animalized bodies. By contrast, spiritual science points to a path leading to true social virtues that are illumined by spirit, warmed with soul, and implemented by ennobled human beings. Achieving spiritual perception of the supersensible human being leads toward a future housed in a beautiful new edifice based on freedom in intellectual and cultural affairs. Spirit-imbued individuals will be free individuals. Equality in our spirit-warmed soul activity. Souls receptive to spirit perceive and treat other souls they encounter in life as equals in a great mystery. Genuine brotherly, sisterly love, practiced by bodies ennobled by spirit and soul. Understanding the real nature of body, soul and spirit will lead to a human social order based on liberty, equality and fraternity. The end of Lecture 2